Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 18th, 2014, and this is episode 1429 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good one for you today. Returning to the show, Stephen Scott of Terroir Seeds to talk about seed saving and selecting for specific traits and some other really great stuff. He's also going to tell you about a seed saving uh, online course that he's doing with Marjorie Wildcraft that's now available and a lot of other really cool things. Steve's a great guy. This this interview went long because we have so much in common. I think it's like uh, two friends talking together. I think it's what you're going to hear in today's interview. Before I bring Stephen on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is HarvestEating.com. The illustrious, the awesome, the cool Chef Keith Snow, expert council member for a reason. He is an expert on cooking seasonally and locally and all things cooking, honestly. He has awesome stuff at his website, HarvestEating.com, including some really great seasonings and sauces, along with great videos. He's got an incredibly great podcast, and he's just an all-around great guy. If you don't think uh, cooking is a survival skill, you've never done what I've done, and that is live on MREs for six months. You do that, and you'll be all about learning how to cook. If you want to do it, you can learn it from Chef Keith Snow. Next up today, westernbotanicals.com, herbs of a different kind. If I ever need anything as far as ache or a pain or sore head or whatever, I always try to turn to herbals first, and when I do that, I look to uh, Western Botanicals for everything herbal. If it's legal and it's herbal and it's in the United States, they'll have it, and they won't lie to you or BS you or hype you in any way, shape, or form. And if you need assistance, you pick up the phone and you call them. They will be helpful and help you figure out what to do for yourself, including, hey, dude, guess what? You should go see the doctor because they're honest, real people who really care about you, westernbotanicals.com. Should note on that that Harvest Eating and Western Botanicals both do discounts for members of the support brigade, like many of our other sponsors do, and many other companies do. That's a good segue into that. If you're not yet an MSB member, please consider joining. You're basically buying a product that will pay for itself. If you buy things in a self-sufficiency, self-reliance world, everything from guns to gardens and everything in between, even our guest today does a discount for members of the Support Brigade on seeds. So that should give you an idea of the breadth and depth of stuff in the MSB. Plus, you get some other really cool free content that's available nowhere else. And you support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. So my real sales pitch on it is, at the end of an episode, if you think it was worth 20 cents, consider joining because that's how the math works out. Uh, with that, let us go to the year that was the episode, the year 1429. Uh, both of today's uh, segments are on Joan of Arc. One is Joan of Arc, the Maiden of Orleans. And Joan of Arc, A Vision for You. Joan of Arc is a name almost all of us know, but a lot of us, I don't think, know the real story of Joan of Arc. I'm going to tell you about the Maiden of Orleans today. You can read the Vision for You segment at the TSP Wiki, tspwiki.com. Remember, we're talking about the year 1429 because that is the episode, a little window into history for some perspective on what goes on today. In 1428, the English laid siege to Orleans, and Joan of Arc, now 18 years old, has managed to talk a local lord into providing an armed escort to take her to the provincial King Charles VII. After careful examination of her claims by a board of the clergy, she is judged sane and pious. She insists that she must lead an army to Orleans, 
and break the siege, and in fact, that is exactly what she does. Dressed in a man's armor, the Maiden of Orleans leads her troops to victory and brings about a turn in the Hundred Years' War between France and England. She will be known as the Maiden, and she's in a big hurry. Her visions tell her she has only a year to accomplish her goals. My take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us. Joan of Arc's main value was to rally the troops, and she did that well. It's not clear if she ever drew a sword in battle, though she was an aggressive leader, and she did take an arrow in the chest. Her visions were mostly urging her on. I don't think she was insane to the mind of the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance. The saints were familiar, reassuring normal things. It was uh, common to collect relics of saints and kings in such clothing, or preserve pieces of their bodies, mistaken or not, the people who hold to the power of the saints are not insane. I don't think they're insane, but I do think that maybe walking around somebody's toe is not a good idea. But I also think that certain things can cause people to reach down and do their very best. And it is very possible that one of the reasons that Joan of Arc was successful in breaking the siege, the siege of Orleans is that the men who were called to battle when they saw an 18-year-old girl leading them felt, if she can, I can. That's my take, and I think that's really the big lesson that I try to teach from the Survival Podcast all the time and to the communities that have built up around it, that many times you don't realize that what you do matters, but every single time you achieve something and demonstrate that it can be done, you show somebody else that it can be done as well. And with that, let us get into the main topic of today's show, which is, again, seeds, seed saving, and all things seeds, with Stephen Seed Scott. Yes, I just made up a new name for him. Stephen Scott of Terroir Seeds. Again, he is working with Marjorie Wildcraft on a brand new uh, seed saving course you can take online. You'll hear about that and many other great things. With that, hey, Steve, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Thanks so much. This is great. Uh, great to be back, and I'm pretty excited about what we've got. Cool, man. Well, before we get started, since some people may have not ever heard you on the air before, can you tell people who you are and what you do and how you got there? Um, how we got here is about a three-beer story. Um, the, the, the elevator version. <laughs> uh, we actually, we're, my name's Stephen. Uh, my wife and I, Cindy, uh, own Terroir Seeds. We're an heirloom seed company. It all came about through our work with rangeland restoration, habitat restoration, soil restoration with local farmers in central Arizona where we live. And that's why the name of the company is Terroir. Terroir means soil. Really, everything comes from the soil. Our motto is from the soil to the food, to the seed, to the food you eat. Because if you have excellent soil and excellent seed, you're going to grow some incredible plants that have pest and disease resistance, weather tolerance. You're going to get incredible food from that that is very, very nutritious. So... I bring it back to, in today's world, it's kind of a radical concept that you can grow some of your own food in your own garden with soil that you've improved, and you can see a measurable increase, a noticeable increase in your overall health. And it's radical because today you've got a medical industry that pays absolutely no attention to nutrition or food. You've got a food industry that cares nothing about the nutrition or the medicine that is that food. Absolutely, and I, I think that that's kind of what we've been trying to teach people for a long time here. And could you say just a little bit, though, about the name of your company and, and what that's about? Sure. 
terroir seeds. Um, we um, heirloom seed company. We have we maintain between a. We, we try to maintain about 600 varieties of vegetables, herbs, and flowers. Our main focus and market are home gardeners because that's where heirlooms came from. You know, um, Grandmother Swenson saved this tomato and passed it down for 14 generations um, or this carrot or, or whatever it was. Um, so home gardeners are really our focus. And that's when you look back throughout history, large-scale and even medium-scale agriculture is only in the past 200 years or so. Um, so for 14,500 years, it's all been basically the equivalent of home gardeners that, that has fed us. You know, and, and, and the, you know, the terroir, of course, comes from the, the concept that uh, there's a sense of place to the taste of food. Absolutely. Uh, and a sense of place to the taste of wine. That's where it's really well known from is that the, 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 the great sommeliers can tell you not only did this wine come from this vineyard, but it came from the eastern slope of this vineyard. The, you know, the kind of like Gary Vanderhoek, a crazy guy that eats dirt to get a sense right, of the, right. the soil character in the wine. And, and I think that that is really indicative of the home gardener. I, I have this friend I've talked about before named Neil who is a really good gourmet cook. And I made just a real simple thing with carrots one time. I uh, pulled them out of the garden like an hour before they were on the grill, and it was carrots and butter and sage. That was it. And right. Grilled. And he was like, these are fabulous. You know, and he's British. How do you make this? Tell me the secret. I'm like, so I tell him how to make it. And he calls me on the phone like a month later. You bastard. I'm like, what? He's like, you're, you're holding something back. And he had tried making this like four times. Huh. And it just was never the same. And I'm like, well, you're buying carrots from the store. He goes, well, they're organic. And I'm like, but they're not fresh. It's different. Right, right. And they're never going to be the same. They're, you're, you know, you can find something fresh. It'll be much better, but they're never going to be exactly the same because those were grown on my place in my garden and they were picked in the cold weather. And you just can't replicate all that. You, you can only <laughs> do it, you know. And I think that's a big thing that, that we want people to start learning is that, that is a huge, huge difference in the quality of the food. It's not just the nutritive quality, but the quality of taste. Uh, I think if more people were growing and pulling carrots in the cold weather, their kids would be a little less likely to not want to eat their vegetables. Well, exactly, and, and I know you've talked about BRICS levels before, and that is uh, one of the, the perfect examples um, is is the the bricks of the plants and of the the fruit and the vegetables and there, there's a great story on on bricks and it's sweet peppers it's bell peppers what you get in the store is a bricks level of three to four and kids don't eat them because kids find them they have a bitter aftertaste mm-hmm. um, if you take that same uh, commercial hybrid seed and you grow it in your in your home garden with decent soil your bricks level kicks up to six or eight sometimes ten um, kids are going to find it sweet um, the the flesh is noticeably thicker it's juicier it's crunchier it has a more complex taste um, and it and it, that flavor will linger like three to five minutes after after mm-hmm. you finished okay now if you were to take and grow that in really biologically active, really fertile, really healthy soil. Those peppers don't make it in out of the garden because your kids come home, they throw the books down, they race out in the garden, and they're, they're snacking on them. Um, when you've got bricks in the 12 and 14 range, the, that same exact bell pepper is like candy. It's mm-hmm. noticeably sweet. It's 
It's uh, really rich. It's it's got you know five or six or eight different flavors that you can identify even without a trained you know connoisseur's palate. And the flavor is going to linger like five or ten minutes after after you finished it. And that's you know so when you when you're talking about terroir and and the you know the whole bricks and and the flavors, that's what brings people to gardening. You know it's not. You know, you can throw all the health claims at them. You can throw all these other things. The simplest thing to do is you hand them a carrot, you hand them, you know, a piece of spinach or whatever, um, a tomato, you know, and they've never tasted this kind of stuff. Well, and why do you think that that, that chefs running really high-end, you know, restaurants that, you know, will spend the extra money to buy from a market gardener? Exactly. It's not just so they can say we're selling locally produced food. That's hot now, and that is a good marketing pool. But they, the chefs were doing that long before anybody cared because they wanted, especially the French, the, the, the chefs with the French backgrounds. Right. They know right. The, the, the French know full well what we're talking about. And it's funny you bring up peppers because that was like one of the ways we hooked my sister-in-law with all of this. She was over at her place in Arlington, and... I don't remember the variety because I grow all types of peppers, but there was a it's a small orange pepper, uh, sweet pepper that I had in the garden, and I pulled it off and I handed. it. I said, "You can just eat it." There's and it was like she was kind of scared to just bite it <laughs> and bite into it, but it hasn't been washed. I'm like, "There's never been anything on it. It's it's per- you can just eat it." And when she bit into it, she's like, "Oh my god!" Right, right, right. And right. it's a pepper. Right. <laughs> And she's like, why does it taste like that? I'm like, because the, the, the bed that it's being grown in, the soil's been cultivated now for five years. Right. And it's never once been dug up. Right. Since, since it was first established. And so anyway, that type of thing has opened up a lot of markets. And we're here to really talk about seed saving today. But we also have a situation now where we have a lot of veterans returning. And you were telling me about this off the air. And I wanted to kind of, before we get into the seed saving stuff, talk about this. Um, where, where folks are coming back from service and wanting to establish business in the agricultural fields uh, or farming and things like that. And you're actually uh, involved with this, and it's called the Homegrown by Heroes. Is that right? That's the certification. Um, okay. The, the organization uh, is called Farmer Veteran Coalition. They're out of Davis, California. Um, there's in in Jack like you and I were talking beforehand. There's a number of veteran related organizations that are helping people who want to move into agriculture and production do so. So I you know I'm not saying that Farmer Veteran Coalition is the only one out there. And nothing else is any good. It's just this particular organization has really resonated with us because they're very successful at helping. Um, returning veterans get into farming for the first time. They help partner them with experienced growers, experienced farmers. They're really successful at help getting grants uh, for equipment, for plans, for getting things started. They they really seem to be kind of movers and shakers in this area. So we've been fans of theirs for a while. And this, this program called Homegrown by Heroes, it started with the state of Kentucky. And basically what it is is the Homegrown by Hero certification um, uh, for a business. The business has to be 50% uh, or more owned and run 
by veterans. It can't just be owned by veterans and you know anybody who runs it. Uh, and if it's a product, it has to be 50% grown by veterans. Um, so we're one of the first companies that because there's a lot there's a number of farmers that are that are becoming certified, but we're one of the first companies that are certified as a company uh, because obviously all of our growers aren't veterans, but um, we are three quarters. Uh, Three out of the four of us are veterans. I'm I'm Navy from uh, from the Persian Gulf War, and my both of my in-laws are uh, Air Force from the the uh, Vietnam conflict. So we're 75% veteran-owned. So as a company, we've been certified as as a homegrown by Hero, um, and it's just I, I just want to kind of give a shout out for these types of programs that are helping returning veterans. Um, I, I I once heard the statement saying, you know. We we have a, this group of kids, the younger people, that have done volunteered to do the absolute hardest thing possible. You know, they've written a blank check to our country, um, up to and including the price of their life, and they've done this typically as late teenagers, you know, young twenties, and and they've they fulfilled that obligation, and now they're coming back and wanting to do the second hardest thing, which is farmers. We just need to help them and remove obstacles and get the heck out of their way. I think that's that's awesome. And it, what it made me think of when we were talking about this off air too is that there was a, there was some emperor I don't remember which one of of Rome that when he left his office of being the emperor, which you don't usually think of emperors doing that, right? But right. <laughs> And he went off into the Spanish hills or something like that and started farming. And there was this time where Rome was in trouble and they wanted him to come back and be part of this political solution. And he showed whoever was talking to him a couple cabbages and said, I have accomplished more here than I have in all my time as Caesar. And I think that there's, especially for someone involved with war and conflict, there's a piece that comes from being part of natural systems and growing things. And knowing that what I'm doing now is not just a way to make money, but I'm actually feeding someone. Right. And and I also have always said this when I talk about these types of subjects on the air. And I've got some people that are – I'm not really into the garden stuff, Jack and all. I'm like, there's something about being connected with the, the soil mm-hmm. that I believe is a human innate thing and that it's very cathartic, especially for people that have been – Wounded, not just physically, but emotionally. Traumatized, right. To, to, to be, and, and sometimes it's not even like PTSD or something like that. Right. I know when I got out of the Army, I, I didn't come from a conflict zone or anything like that. I was I was deployed to the Middle East for a very brief period of time during the first Gulf War. Uh, but it was several years after that before I got out. I wasn't traumatized or anything, but I just didn't readjust immediately. It, it was like... I think in the old days, like during World War II, you got on a ship with your buddies and you were on the, the boat for six weeks before you were back in the middle of, of the world. Right. And, you know, I'm I'm in uniform one day and I'm walking around the neighborhood I grew up in the next. And I just – it doesn't work. You right. can't switch like that and just go back in. So I spent two months walking the Appalachian Trail. And I think a lot of our veterans, whether it becomes a full-time career or it's just a transitional stage, they need things like this to readapt and readjust and feel like I have something meaningful to do because otherwise you come home and collect unemployment for a while. Right. Or right. Uh, you're on a disability retirement and, well, what do I do now? Right. And if you spent your time in the military in combat arms and you don't want to go back into some kind of contracting or something like that, there's not a lot of openings. 
Um, or if you, like me, I was a mechanic, and when I got out, I'm like, I don't ever want to see a wrench again. <laughs> right, right. Then you right. got to figure out something new to do with your life. Right. Well, exactly, exactly. And, and you know, beyond the veterans, you know, what we see with the different programs that we work with through our membership program, um, the one, one of them that stand out the most is there's a prison garden program in, in central Illinois that we support, we provide seeds to, and, and it was the chaplain who, who restarted this program. And it was, of course, you know, in, in – up until about the 50s or 60s, it was a mandatory program because most of your gardens, most of your prisons grew their own food or a lot of their own food if, if they were capable of it. And so with this particular program, it was entirely volunteer. And the first couple of years, it kind of hesitated a little bit. But then as those prisoners transitioned out back into civilian life, they found that they had a skill set. They were calmer. They had better uh, attention. Um, they weren't as angry. They were able to assimilate back into modern, you know, everyday culture. Um, and it's surprising to see how many of the prisoners who participated in the gardening program went into some form of agriculture. Um, and the the um, the return rate, the recidivism, is greatly reduced among this particular population you know and just so it, the thing that i look at is is you know food is the third most important ingredient in life way before shelter and clothing and all of this and if you can grow your own food there's a skill set there that you cannot unlearn you cannot lose you can share with a lot of people and it it gives you a sense of you know, I don't know what you want to call it, accomplishment or confidence or, or whatever, because, you know, if you can feed and clothe and shelter yourself, you know, it doesn't really matter what the world throws at you. And, and I mean, when you really break it down, that's what you're doing on a daily level, on a, you know, a daily basis is helping people learn how to do those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that's what we want to do. And I think one of the things that we can do uh, it, with with this type of thing is having people developing their own lines of seeds and things like that. And I, I think that it's important for people to do what you're doing uh, with this new course as well and teaching people to save seeds. And you're partnered up with someone the audience knows very well, Marjorie Wildcraft, in doing this. Um, and we'll get into this as we go through the interview. There's There's a limit to how much people can do with this in their own backyard, but there's also a lot of things they can do. Yes, yes. Right? I mean, and there's a lot of opportunity then for exchange and individual line development and stuff like that. Before we get into that, though, I got one for you because I had no idea that this is what these little things looked like. But I purchased some tea plants uh, this year. Huh, okay. And uh, a tea that originally came from Sochi, Russia, so it should be cold hardy enough for me here in Texas. Okay. And I have two of them sitting in the shaded greenhouse and one planted out. None of them are doing that great. But I was in there last night, and I looked, and this thing that looked like a nut was hanging on the side of the tea, little tea shrub. And I picked it up, and it cracked open, and these two little nut-looking things came out of it. I had no idea tea seed looks like this. Oh, interesting. It looks like little beans. Like a coffee bean? Sort of, kind of, almost like a Mexican jumping bean, but bigger. Oh, wow. uh, Which isn't really a bean, but you know the shape of those things that you see in the little markets and all. And uh, I'm going to try to grow them. And uh, I've looked around, and there's tons of people out there with with tea plants for sale for like 30 bucks a plant. Right. But not a lot of seed for sale. 
And I looked up how to do it, and I, it, from what I see, you basically do what you would do with, like, a uh, mimosa seed or something like that, which is pour hot water over it as a, a method of, uh, like, a method of scarifying. Sure. And then soak them on paper, soak them in water for a while so they swell up a little bit, and then put them on a wet paper towel. For, and for the a, ones that crack open, okay. plant on the ground. So you pre you pre sprout them or pre germinate them then? Yeah, you get them to like where they start to start to germinate right. before you put them in the ground. Um, but I got two of them. Oh, that's cool. I'm gonna well, try to find some more because you know, and I don't know that much about tea uh, trees and plants and cultivation. But if memory serves me right, most of the tea seedlings that you get are not not seedlings, but plants. Those are grown from cuttings, aren't they? I I think so. But now the ones I bought, I bought from Rain Tree. And they may be doing cuttings for the expediency of propagation, but it, it states in the literature where they sell it to you that it's grown from seed collected in Sochi Russia. Oh, okay, gotcha. So the original so, plant was, was a seed. Okay, gotcha. So my thought is, what if we got a couple hundred of these suckers? I don't know where I got, I got two. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we just we stunned them like Mark Shepard does and just planted them in a climate like this, and if 80% of them die, so be it. Um, if it'll survive Sochi, you know, it should survive North Texas. That's the way I look at it anyway. Exactly. Exactly. And, and one of the points that you're bringing up, um, that is, you know, is, is excellent. And, and, you know, this leads right into what we're talking about, but is individual plant breeding. You know, you don't have to be a university. You don't have to be a seed company. You don't have to be, you know, you just need, you just need to want to do it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I kind of like to get your thoughts on this. Now, this was more about growing perennials. This was more about trees. But I recent, listened to a recent interview, and I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he kind of specializes in chestnuts and hazelnuts. Okay. And he said that if you are trying to grow, get a new tree that grows to a certain size, flowers by a certain time, has a great tasting nut, survives a certain climate, and you, you, know, you list all these things you want that, that tree to produce – that it's like one in a million trees, and you'll never get it all. But if you initially select for two things, mm-hmm. and then take all the seed that had those two things, and then grow that and select for two more things, right? Right. You can actually get very far very fast. And toward the end, he was asked, for those that are out there working with annuals, would you do the same thing? And he said, absolutely. Yes. Well, and, and an excellent example of this is um, uh, the hibiscus plant. Uh, the, hmm. the Mexicans use it to make hamayaca, which is, and it was actually the original coloring ingredient and flavoring ingredient in Jello uh, and Kool-Aid. The, the red Kool-Aid was from from the, the hibiscus plant. Well, the, the problem is it grows great in Mexico, um, but it's too um, season sensitive, uh, daylight sensitive to to grow you know up past like the Mexican border within maybe a hundred miles, um, but. One of our growers, who's a seed breeder outside of Sacramento, California, um, she's developed over the last decade a variety of hibiscus or homayaca that, um, and, and we were actually, when we visited the, the, her farm, we were surprised because this variety that she had selected was six feet tall and was full of calyxes and um, the, the flowers and well on the way to setting fruit. And the traditional variety was about three feet tall and had like one or two little buds. 
and, and granted, you know, this took a little bit longer, and trees, you know, that's an example of things that take a little bit longer. But just like your jalapeno experiment, you know, that you've done for the last mm-hmm. several years, you can see some amazingly rapid responses to these things because realistically, they, you know, all these seeds want to do is adapt anyway. All we do is encourage ad- adaptation in a certain direction. Yeah, and that's a perfect example. I didn't even know that's what I was doing, but I was two things, big and red. There that's you, it. There you go. Right, right, right. That was the only thing, and I've had a couple bad years, so my supply of seed now is in jeopardy, but um, and I should have saved more. But the, the, the comforting thing with that is I just look at that and go, well, that was really easy to do. That could be done again. Exactly. I, I started with a basic heirloom, which was just jalapeno M. Right. And then just said, I want the biggest thick-walled red, and they, they go full-on red. Right. You know, if there's any green at all, no. If it goes red to that purple color, which is really cool, fine. Right. But nothing but red and thick-walled and big. Yeah, and that's that's selection, pure and simple, which is, you know, and I said this in my interview in January, but, you know, and I constantly reinforce this with people, selection is the most underrated, most underused and overlooked thing that a home gardener has. Mm. You know, and... <laughs> Um, you know, all my growers use selection. They have to, you know, but the home gardener forgets that. So, it, you know, it, but it, it's, it's hugely important. But, but getting back to what you were saying just a little bit earlier is, is yeah, you know, the home gardeners are really the foundation of your seed industry. Um, because if you didn't have home gardeners, you wouldn't have heirlooms. You know, if you didn't have people saving seed and passing them down and then they travel all over the world, you know, you wouldn't have B, Baker Creek, Seed Savers Exchange, you know, any of your heirloom seed companies, you wouldn't have Parks, you wouldn't have Burpee because they got their start in heirlooms, you know, in open pollinated varieties. So people overlook, you know, oh, I'm just a home gardener, you know, what do I do? Well, you know what, you're a very important cog in that whole thing. And the three layers, you know, that I always talk about, um, and I want to start everything off with, is, you know, the home gardener's a foundation, and not just what you're growing and saving and replanting yourself, but trading, you know, and that moves up that next level of seed exchanges, you know, local seed swaps. Um, and we talked earlier uh, in, in the earlier interview about the importance of if you're growing black creme, you don't go to the seed swap just to look for other seed. You're, you're looking to find other people who grew that black creme so you can trade seed. And you want to find those people that know what happened, and they can tell you, oh, it, it germinated like this, and these are what the fruits were, and all my other plants had, you know, late blight, and this one didn't. You know, th- those are the yep. people you want to interact with because they, they care. Um, you know, they're 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 passionate about what they do, and they're going to give you the best seed. And then, of course, on top of everything, you've got your seed companies, everything from smaller seed companies like us to Parks and Burpee and that sort of thing. And without all three layers, what I call your seed economy suffers because not you know the seed companies can't maintain some of these varieties are only grown in one specific area um but we're kind of a backstop uh for some serious seed savers some of my customers have their own seed banks and they'll call me and go hey you know what i think i've got a i think this one crossed or this one's starting to drift and i'm going to get rid of the seed and start over with yours i'm the backstop because they know that i maintain the quality um, because that's what I have to do, you know. So you need all three layers, and they have to be all three of them have to be healthy. If you're in an area that doesn't have very many home gardeners, or they don't con- communicate and collaborate and get together with with one another, um, you know that area really suffers. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that there's 
There's also a, a, a point where we have to realize some of our limitations yes. as home gardeners. So, for instance, it would be very easy for me, even if I was growing other squashes, to, to work with butternut and just say, I'm going to make the most badass, hardy for my climate, deal with my alkaline soil, butternut squash that's ever existed right here, because I can take the time to manually pollinate and isolate uh, that particular squash and mark the vines that I've done it on and things like that. There's no way the average home gardener that maybe was growing four varieties of winter squash has the time to really do that and really work on it with all four varieties. Right. So if they want to work with one or two or maybe a tomato and a pepper or something like that, most of us can get really good at a few but if we want a lot of variety, we're still going to end up with what you're calling the backstop and going to the companies because we can only do so much with exchanges and things like that. Right. And I know when I buy from you or Baker Creek or what have you, I'm going to get fresh, pure, good, high germinating seed. Right. And I can bank on you for that. And, and that's how it should be. Uh, you know, because I'm I'm not, you know, it's funny because people think, oh, you know, why is a seed company doing a seed saving course? Isn't that going to put you out of business? Well, no, no. because <laughs> one, you know, let's I mean, let's take your garden in, in you know the Dallas Fort Worth area. Okay, you can't grow brassicas. You you know, you're not going to be able to save seed from brassicas. I can grow them, but no, I I have to grow them at the right time of the year, and by the time they're going to want to go to seed, it's it's full on crazy. Yeah. Right, you know, and, and I mean, you know, as a biennial, really, you're going to devote that much space, no. you know, in your garden. I don't have time for it. Right. I just don't have time to jack with it. I like broccoli, but a packet of broccoli seed is cheap. There you go. There right? you and go. And it's worth more to me to have the time in that bed to successively plant something else than to leave a broccoli plant to sit there for a year right. and have to love on it right. like a get out just to get seed off. And hope to get seed, right. You know, hope to get and, seed. and another thing that, that I want to point out, you know, you're passionate about peppers. Yep. And it's, it's the same as if, you know, your neighbor was passionate about eggplant. You know, that's the awesome thing is, is don't, you know, don't try to save seed for stuff you don't like. And I know that just sounds really obvious, but... I still get phone calls, you know, or emails. Hey, what kind of tomato should I grow? Okay, let's back up a couple steps. Do you like tomatoes? Yeah. You know, and sometimes people kind of look at you funny. And but ha about half the time, I get people going, "Well, not really." Okay, so why yeah. are you asking me about growing tomatoes? Well, my aunt, you know, or my grandma, or my mom, or my dad, or whoever. And it's like, okay, are you growing them for them? Well, no, they're dead. Okay, so why are well, you even yeah, thinking yeah. <laughs> about this? You know, but it's these habits we have, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's like grow and eat what you want, what you're passionate about. It's the same thing with seed saving. You know, if if you're looking for the best eggplant ever, I guarantee it'll come out of your garden. Yeah. But that's the thing you need to be involved with is if, you know, if you didn't if you don't care two figs for peppers, don't worry with them, you know. And what I like about you too, you're not a hybrid anti-hybrid Nazi. Right? Hybrids have hybrids their place. Hybrids have a place, right? That's amazing. It's like stereo. Right? <laughs> and they do. They, they have, like, and, and, and there is a, just a, a massive amount of people out there marketing to this niche, this, this prepper niche with the GMOs. And they're taking GMO and hybrid, and they're hybridizing the concept. And it's just not true. No. I mean, yes. It's just not true at all. Right, right. All, all GMOs do start as hybrids. Yes. But you know all hybrids aren't GMOs and a lot of people don't even know where hybrids came from. 
Hybrids originated in the 20s and 30s when your first mass exodus off the farmland into uh, cities happened. And so all of a sudden, the, the, you know, what we call market growers, they were faced with, look, you know, I, I can't just produce 100 pounds of tomatoes for the market every weekend. I've got to have 1,000. And I've got to yep. have 1,000 pounds of tomatoes every Saturday yep. you know, for, for this market. Okay, so heirlooms is what we call is, you know, open pollinated. They don't, they don't do that. They don't ripen all at the same time. They don't, they don't, that's not what they do. You know, and so your seed breeders... Uh, started, you know, combining, okay, look, this is, you know, this is a really prolific one, and this one's an early ripening one. Let's put those together and see what happens. That's where hybrids came from. And, of course, you know, the pendulum swung so far to the other way to where your supermarket tomatoes, flavors never even considered. You know, they're bred for early, even ripening, thick skin, and, and literally it's a characteristic that's bred. It's called tolerance for shipping. Mm-hmm. That that's ser- that's seriously a characteristic that it's bred for. So flavor well, it's number one characteristic that it's bred for exactly. Flavors at the bottom, and it's kind of an afterthought. Flavor it, is not considered out that way. Fine, right. you know. Flavor. Well, seed. You know, the breeders do not consider flavor at all, and they're on record for saying this. Mm. But of course, the pendulum's starting to swing back because we're seeing hybrids that are now starting to talk about you know bred for flavor. Well, obviously they're responding to market pressure, and that's what you know that's what happens. But no, I'm not anti-hybrid. Um, I, I just try to make sure that people understand. The difference between open pollinated, where you can save seed, and hybrid, where you can't, and well, to a degree too, right? Because it, the truth is that almost every heirloom that we have started out as a hybrid that was then proven out. Correct, correct. And and if people understand that, like seed breeders call hybrids a good start, simply because it's the first <laughs> generation, and if you're tomatoes, you're going to go to seven to ten to fifteen generations. Uh, you know, before you have a stable variety, and guess what? Now you have a new open pollinated variety. So yeah, and I think you're right. there's a lot of opportunity there too, though. I think that that's something that a home gardener can just pick one thing and do a known cross and see what comes out of it, and then F3, F4, F5, and just say, you know, you, like you said, selection is your tool, right? Right. So when it reproduces the way I want it to, or when it morphs into something really interesting, I'll work with that. It takes a lot of work, though, but – and it's like I said, it's not something you're going to do with 20 plants, but you could do it with one thing. Right, exactly, one variety. Yes, exactly. And aren't we lucky somebody did? Well, you know, in a, in a perfect <laughs> example of that is um, uh, called the black pineapple tomato. Um, this pineapple tomato, it's a big beefsteak. Um, and, and this particular variety was being grown in Belgium. Very experienced gardener, but not a seed grower, not a market grower at all. He was a home gardener. And two or three of the plants that he planted, everything grew the same until they started setting fruit, and they had the black characteristics, which are the the shading on the shoulders. You know, they start out green and then they turn black. And and one of the characteristics of that black gene is a rich, complex, just amazing flavor. And so now you've got this kind of fruity tasting, pineapple kind of tasting tomato that now has these added complexity, you know, flavors kicked in. And, you know, thankfully, this home gardener didn't yank those plants out. You know, it saw something different, paid attention to it, saved the seed from, 
And then he grew it out for five or six or ten years. I don't know. He grew it out for a while before he even started trading seed with the neighbors. And somehow it got into a seed company, and now we have the black pineapple tomato as a wonderful seed. And it wouldn't have happened because there's not enough money probably for a university to make the effort to do that. Right. No, it was totally by accident. You know, it was totally just a, you know, a wild cross somewhere. Um, And somebody was, you know, a home gardener was observant enough to take advantage of it. So, you know, it's a perfect example. And it's, it's been the case that these new things have traditionally come from gardeners and farmers. Yes. They, they, you know, they, you look at apples and say, well, everything's a clone now, but where do we get the thing to clone? The, the yellow delicious apple came from a, an apple grower who went, holy crap, look at these new apples. Right. It was growing from seed and just seeing what happened. Right. right. And a lot of the things, the apples, the pears, all these varieties, a lot of them go back to the, uh, to the, the, uh, the, the manor house gardens of, of England, where they were they would have these master gardeners manually pollinating cross pollination, and you say, well, you got to wait ten years for the tree to produce or whatever. No, they would they would do this. They would grow that seed, and then they would graft in the second year that whip onto another plant, right. which would force it to fruit much faster. And within two years, they'd know right. what what this thing's producing and. Tons of this variety exists because of that type of work. And again, it was all done by small people because everybody wanted to have their tomato or their apple. Right. And, and we can do that again. But as we look at – I'm looking at your course here and kind of seeing the outline in it. And you've got it broken down in seven sections. In the introduction, you talk about some of the difficulties and challenges and the benefits of saving your seeds. Can you maybe expand on that? Yes. The the home gardener definitely has a different set of circumstances than, than a seed grower, you know, obviously. And, and the biggest thing is space. Um, so that limits the number of varieties they can grow. You know, we've, we've talked about this a, a fair amount. But also the home gardener has some experience challenges. Um, you know, they might not have grown up or they might, you know, in a, in a seed growing family, a home gardening family, uh, they might not have gone to university, that sort of thing. And they may not understand or have the patience for doing several years worth of seed saving and selection and that sort of thing, or may not understand. Um, so, it, you know, it, does it mean you can't do anything at all? No, it just means that, um, you know, one of my seed growers uh, grows 80 different varieties for us. Um, but, but uh, you know, that's on 10 acres of just seed production. Um, so as a home gardener, and just like you've mentioned before, you do one. You know, you do a melon. Um, you do a pepper and a tomato, that sort of thing. When we will, we will grow uh, the green machine melon um, here in our trial garden for seed, and it's the only melon that we grow that year simply so that there's no cross-contamination, there's no pollination issues. Um, we can save seed, and, and we know that it's high quality. So just because there are some challenges, you just need to recognize those and recognize that you know, realistically for most home gardeners, growing your brassicas for seed because they're a biennial, meaning it takes two years to get seed, is probably not a good idea. But, you know, tomatoes, beans, peas, um, wheat, those kind of things are perfect for the home gardener. And so you do one tomato and, you know, my, my, my wife's uh, maybe wheat intolerant, so I want to try this heirloom wheat. 
and, and you try that. So you can overcome these challenges uh, with a little bit of planning, and, and we walk you through some of that planning. And, and some of that planning kind of moves into your second part of the course, which is some of the logistics, the garden planning, because we have to think about as we're laying out a garden, if we're planning on seed saving, well, that's not just my tomato bed, right? Now i got to think about where if I'm going to grow other varieties, how much separation I create and things like that. Right, and, and part of it is, um, and especially with, with your audience, because I know you've talked a lot about intensive um, intensive planting, succession planting, uh, you know, your permaculture, which um, creates, you know, your, your forest-type conditions. For food production, that's awesome. You know, that's exactly what you want. But for seed production, typically you want to open it up just a little bit. So, you know, let's, let's say you've got a 10-foot garden bed that you're doing tomatoes on. And so uh, maybe eight feet uh, you're doing your tomatoes and your carrots and all of your interse- you know, intersection uh, planting, but that two feet that okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna work with seed on these two plants and leave that more open, because you need to be able to get in and and look at those flowers. You need to be able to easily get in and look at the fruit. If you're having difficulties getting in, you know, and if you're harvesting food, that's one thing, but when you're when you're growing for seed, those plants stay in the ground a lot longer. Um, so, you know, we talk a little bit about the soil requirements and the nutrition and that sort of thing. But just you're going to be interacting with these plants a lot more than just you know growing a tomato so it's ripe and then you and then you pick it. So if you need to be able to get in and work with these plants without damaging them, and it needs to be comfortable for you. Um, I I try to emphasize set yourself up for success. Only start with one or two varieties. Give yourself some room. Give yourself some space. Um, you know, and, and it's not a bad idea to start with one thing you want to save seed from. And you can do a lot of things then. You can put in a bed to cultivate that particular variety or not grow anything else that's going to interfere with it. Right. Or you can also do time staging. So I've had people say, well, I want to grow two varieties of corn, so I can't save the seed because one cross-pollinates with the other. Well, plant one three weeks after the other. They're going to be in tassel at different times then. There's lots. There's more than just geography in the creation of separation. Exactly. And, and the, three, the three isolation methods are your time, your distance, and your physical barriers. And your distance is the most difficult for the home gardener simply because most gardens aren't big enough to separate um, pollen transfer, you know, pollen drift, that sort of thing. Um, but your time is, is ideal. Uh, just like selection is the most underutilized tool for the home gardener, time isolation most home gardeners don't even know about. But here, here's exactly how powerful time isolation is. Um, one of our corn growers is in Missouri in the middle of the corn belt. Okay, They're growing open-pollinated heirloom corn, and there's GMO corn in the area. Okay, mm-hmm. now you know people go, "Oh my God!" You know, um, they have agreements with all of their 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 uh, neighbors that they plant just like you said three weeks earlier than anybody else, and they're still staggering the different varieties because they grow like four or five different varieties of corn. They're still staggering those varieties so that each individual variety is pollinating, you know, is, is in pollen at a different time. And all of their varieties are done with pollination before the neighbors ever come into pollination. 
And so the other thing that they do just to, to make sure because they're supplying you know me as a seed company, they do genetic testing to make sure that they don't have GMO contamination. Um, and the white eagle corn, we sent them white eagle corn. This is a, a Cherokee Trail of Tears corn, uh, documented that it, it came back over on the Trail of Tears with them. It's, it's a very treasured corn for the Cherokee Nation. Um, we sent them a seed stock because we were, we were getting low and our, our grower had literally died. Um, so we didn't have a grower for this. So I sent them this corn, and these kernels were uh, a quarter to three-eighths of an inch tall. You know, what you would expect heirloom corn to look like. When we got the corn back, it was five-eighths to almost three-quarters of an inch long. It was twice as thick. It was almost twice as long. It was three times as heavy. And and uh, when I looked at this, it was like, holy cow, you know, because the quality of that seed had been so much improved because they had good soil, they had good ma- management techniques, Um you know, and so just over one season, it was amazing what had happened. Um, but their time isolation—that's how they stay in business. And then you have physical barriers as well, right? Those are more. Well, yes. Um, the thing that I always think about is isolation cages, but but uh, which is really difficult for a home gardener. But you mentioned tying squash blossoms, you know, hand hand pollinating yep. and tying or taping squash blossoms. And realistically, yep. that's more of the scale of your home gardener. Um, you know, you, you take the pollen from the male and transfer it to the female flower, and then you tape that flower shut. Yep. Um, sometimes people will put a bag over it, you know, a, a, like a mesh Here's bag. I, right. I, I watch, and you can see a, a squash, female blossom is obvious. It's got a baby squash behind it. Right. And I'll watch that form, and when I know it's just about to open, I'll grab a male blossom, pull the, the petals off it so that the pistol's there, and I'll, I'll actually pull open the female flower, and I'll just dab the pollen on it. Right. And I take a piece of... Um, plain old masking tape, and tape that flower shut so it will never open. And I take a small tie wrap, like a little bitty uh, zip tie, and I put it on the stem. And that's marked that that particular fruit has been manually pollinated. And within a day, that female blossom falls off. Right. And is, if, if, assuming pollination was good, and I actually get much better results this way, than I, then maybe I'll get better results now that I have bees. But before I had bees, I got much more. I actually started doing it. Because it was giving me better fruit set. Yes, exactly. Right? And then I went, well, duh, all i got to do is close this thing up, and then, you know, it, it will be isolated from other ones. And that's it. And then when, you know, if it's a butternut, for instance, I'm not going to use the peel. So when I harvest that one, I just put a, I just take a Sharpie and write a P on it. Right. And I know I've pollinated that one. So whenever we use that, I know that seed can be saved or given away. Right, exactly. It's so simple to do that. And a cage for a butternut vine that grows freaking 20 feet long if you let it? I mean, really? Right. right. For me? I mean, I know your your growers can do that, but I don't have time for that crap. Right, exactly. And and realistically, most growers are, are hand-pollinating and tying tying flowers shut any, anyway, simply because, just like you said, trying to put a cage around something sprawling like that, you know, it, it yeah. just becomes crazy. Um, one thing you mentioned is the bees, uh, and that's something that we do touch on is um, – a little later on is pollination um, and the importance of growing a pollinator garden alongside or in the middle of your regular garden, bringing those pollinators in, your fruit set, your seed quality just skyrockets. Absolutely. 
I mean, and there's so many things that do that well that are also also useful. If you go outside right now, I've got basil everywhere. (laughs) The stuff that's bolted now and and gone to seed, it's covered with wasps and little things that I don't even know what they are, and the bees are on it. Flies and everything else, right, right. And if you let parsley, you know, you talk about biannuals, and some are difficult, but something like parsley, it just gets stronger as it grows. Right. Uh, as long as your geese don't eat it, which I found <laughs> geese really like parsley. Oh, do they? Uh, okay. But the second year when that thing sends up a flower, I mean, it's just a billion little different flies on there. And But the parsley is very useful in that first year. Yes. It doesn't taste good the second year, but right. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. once it kind of goes through its metamorphosis, cilantro is another one that when it flowers. Yeah. It's, so these are all things dill. I mean, yeah. I, I've seen well, and, and, you tons know, of pollinators. Um, you know, we we have pollinator attractant mixes and that sort of thing, which is one approach. But you know, doing doing some flowers and it's like you know, I've I've been a hardcore vegetable gardener myself. You know, and and I never really looked at flowers as much more than pretty. You know, and, mm-hmm. until you you know, and so I've experienced those disconnects. You know, and you start looking at wait a second, if I bring more flowers in. You know, my pollinators come in, and even with, like, tomatoes, you know, that perfect flower that it, by the time it, the flower opens, it's usually pollinated, you get the bumblebees in there doing their dance on the flowers and mm-hmm. vibrating that pollen in there, you get two to three times the fruit set, you know, than, yeah. than not yeah. having, you know. So it's not that, you know, the pollinators need to physically transfer from one flower to another. Them just getting out there and doing their thing increases the pollen, uh, the pollination, the fertilization. So it, it makes it makes a huge difference. And I think one thing people can do is be looking around when you're out and about, and if you see something covered with bees, plant some of that. There and you that, go. You know, example for me is blue salvia. Right. Um, you're saying I, I, sure. Sure, I could have looked that up and found out that it was a because it is well known. But I didn't know, and I was at a Walmart one day, and they have all these plants out in the uh, parking lot. And I'm walking through, and all of a sudden, I I can hear buzzing, (laughs) right? I can just hear it. There's so many bees there. I can hear them buzzing. And I'm looking around, and I'm looking at all these kind of sterile-looking things, and there's there's all these little blue spikes sticking up. And the bees in the middle of a Walmart parking lot (laughs) were were to the point where people were like – people that were wanting to buy it were like being really careful when they picked them up and stuff. And they were – and I'm like, well, I've got to plant that. Uh, And then there's another plant, God – I cannot remember now, but it kind of looks like a crepe myrtle, sort of, but it grows these blue flowers. And I don't remember what it's called, but I know where it is. I'm just going to go take cuttings off of it um, in, a, in, a, in a Target parking lot. Mm. And, and it was just, I mean, it looked like a bee beard hanging wow. off of the thing. And so if you're, because we all live in different climates, but if you find something that bees are mauling. Right. Right, and, and then there, I've, I've discovered weird things with bees, bee, Stephen. I just don't even—I I don't really get it. So, every other person in Texas grows a crepe myrtle. There's crepe myrtles everywhere, sure. and most people grow the pink to watermelon shade color ones and all, just because they're pretty. And you don't see a lot of bees on them. The white ones, covered. Wow. Every morning, and it's a morning thing. I guess that's when the plants in flow. And I've noticed this since I've started keeping bees, that I don't have any white crepe myrtles here because the original owner didn't plant any. But my neighbor's like, there's bees all over my crepe myrtle now. And I'm like, really? Huh. He's like, yeah, they're there every morning. I'm like, well, I'm sorry. He's like, no, it's fine. Like, Good. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> but I'm like, well, where's the crepe myrtle? You know, because I've got tons of them. I never see them on. He's like, over there. I look and it's, they're all white. Oh, wow. And they like the white flowers for some reason. Right. One of the things 
that I got to point out that I I really like with your approach, um, and and you've mentioned this time and time again, and it's always very applicable, is observe and duplicate natural systems. Correct. You you know you cannot go wrong if the only thing you do is somewhat duplicate natural systems and get the heck out of the way, and you know and it's one of those such a simple thing. You know, we tend to forget about it. We get, we overthink it. We make things too complicated. It's like, you know what? It's like with this whole seed saving thing. You know, this is an introduction to kind of get you thinking and get you some experience and, and help you go through, through some planning. But, you know, if you go through this course and the best thing you get out of it is maybe a little planning and you learn to observe a little more and duplicate what's already naturally happening and bring that more into your garden. You know, you're gonna you're gonna do so much better than any professional landscape architect or, or you know garden uh, consultant or anything. Well, and think about this, right? So, duplicating natural systems it, it applies to seed saving, and, right. and here's how, right? So, you would tell me, Jack, save the tomatoes that, that look and taste the best, and take the seeds from those and keep planting them. Well, how does a bird propagate a cherry? Right. It eats a cherry, it flies through the air, and it craps out a seed that lands somewhere encapsulated in bird poo. It goes through stratification in the winter, and then it germinates and reproduces a new tree. Right. Well, that's not selection. Really, if I gave you a bowl of cherries and half of them tasted like crap and half of them were good, <laughs> which ones would you eat? Right. Yep. Right? Yep. I mean, so it's the exact same formula nature has used for anything that's propagated by being consumed and excreted by animals has always been a selection for flavor, for taste, for sugar count, which is directly related to bricks, which right. is directly related to nutritional value. And health, right. So an animal is going to eat that which it favors, and that, that's going to favor reproduction of anything that passes through. It doesn't apply to things like, let's say, grasses, like wheat, because when an animal eats wheat, it's destroyed. Right. But many plants, when an animal consumes it, the seed passes through. Right. And if the seed passes through, it's been naturally selected to reproduce based on the preference of the of the consumer. Right. Well, and the thing that I think we forget too often is fruit is um, a blackmail. Fruit is the plant's way of blackmailing uh, whatever eats it to disperse and scatter the seeds farther. Absolutely. And, you know, that's something that people forget, that a lot of what we call vegetables are fruits. I- exactly. Like cucumbers and tomatoes are really a fruit. Right. And, and you know, a true, a true vegetable. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're the expert here, but a true vegetable is like a lettuce. That's a that's a vegetable. Right. Right. Exactly. But if it has an internal pulpy seed, it's really a fruit. An eggplant would be a fruit. Right. Because what you're eating is the ovary. You know, if you want to be biologically correct, it sometimes grosses people out. But yeah, you know, <laughs> all you're eating on the tomato is the ovary. Correct. So yeah, okay. yeah. It's kind of I funny. guess you're, you're correct. So can we talk about that too? Because that's another thing in your course. You actually broke up. Uh, the 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 procedures with the seeds and the two things dry and wet and usually with the wet we're dealing with the true fruits so can you talk about how that differs from let's say processing a seed that deals with the dry dry I start with dry harvesting because it's simpler um, okay. you know fermenting a tomato seed is kind of intimidating to people versus um, just picking some some of the runner beans that you like. Um, and just keeping them in your in your kitchen for a week, uh, and then shelling them by hand, letting the seeds dry, and and hey, you're done. You know, 
Um, mm-hmm. The we we, we the, the, there's some different stages in in dry harvesting. Obviously, you have to get mature seed, and this is one of the key points that I that I talk about um, because seed saving is becoming a lot more popular. Uh, but people think that I can go to the supermarket and grab a tomato and save the seed, or you know, farmers market or whatever. And you know, one of the things that we talk about is a lot of times, especially with fruit. Uh, you need to let that fruit go past the edible stage for the seed to be completely mature. So we go through how to determine, uh, you know, if a seed's mature both in in wet and dry. But when you're talking about basil, dill, beans, peas, uh, you know, lettuce, these kind of things, uh, it, it's pretty simple. You know, as the as the the seed starts to set, and you watch this, and as the plant starts to dry. Um, you know, if you're talking basil or dill, um, cilantro, coriander, you know, as it starts to dry, you clip the, the seed heads off, throw them in a paper bag, let them dry, and then you can, you know, then you clean them from there. One of the easiest ways to tell if a seed is, is completely dry, and completely dry technically is about 3 to 4% humidity uh, or moisture, moisture content. But the the classic one is a pea or a bean or you know, a grain of corn is you put it on a hard surface and you lightly tap it with a hammer. If it smooshes, it still needs some drying. But if it shatters, you're good. Um, hmm. and, and, and a key point that um, temperature and humidity is something that we talk about a lot with seed saving. Um, it, for every 1% reduction in seed moisture, you're doubling the seed life. Most uh, most home gardeners will get to about an eight to a ten percent humidity or moisture level. Um, and, and if you can let it sit out, and, and this is the thing, it's not like it's difficult to dry most seeds. You just need to let them sit in a warm, protected area where they're not going to get eaten by birds or, or mice or this sort of thing. But it doesn't hurt, you know, if you let them go for a week or two weeks and you think they're pretty dry. Um, you know, it doesn't hurt to let them sit for another two weeks. And, and, sure, you know, they're designed to do that. Right. Well, and half the time, you know, this is where benign negligence really comes into play, meaning you forget about those seeds, and you come back like a month and a half later. Guess what? There's no harm done. That's perfect. Um, above about 30% moisture, a lot of seeds are going to start to germinate. So the rule of thumb is temperature plus humidity needs to be less than 100, meaning... 75 degrees, 25% humidity, the lifespan of the seed is going to be okay, um, two to three years at the most. But if you can drop that to 60% uh, temperature and 20% humidity, now you've extended that lifespan to five or seven or possibly even ten years. And I think it's important that people realize that there's the, the, the right way and then there's a the good enough way, and it all depends on what you're trying to do. For instance, my grandfather with his pole beans. Um, he would just leave some on until they dried, right? Right. Uh, and when they dried, he would yank them off and put them in a, in a paper sack in the, in the dried-out sure. case, right? Sure. And I'd like, well, should we take them all out? He goes, we'll do that next year when we plant them. Yes. And I'd say, well, why? He goes, because I have to take them out to plant them anyway, but I can do it all at once. Right. And he would just be, he would have this sack, and he would just be grabbing beans out and crumbling them in his hand and shoving them in the ground. <laughs> and they spent all, he wasn't trying to save them for 20 years, though. He was trying to save them till next year. Right. 
And he's like, well, you think if they can stay out there all winter long and sell them <laughs> still grow, you need to do something special with them, dummy? Put them down in the in the basement and leave them alone. Right. And that was his. That was for, but his tomato seeds he doted on. Sure. Right. Those were more important to him. He's like, we got so many damn beans, I don't care anyway. But his <laughs> tomatoes were an important thing. I mean, I I think so. People, if, if there's certain things that maybe you really want to work with, you have to be really careful with what you're doing so that you know you've got things perfect. And then there's some other things. Throw in the ground and see if it grows. I planted freaking um, red cowpea as an establishment cover crop for some of my hoogle beds, and I got friggin' red cowpea, you know, despite drought and alkaline soil, everywhere now. Right. And I'm telling you, I'm not going to do nothing as far as planting more of it, and if it keeps coming back, five or six generations of that, I bet you got some really hardy cowpea, at least for this climate, because nature's deciding what lives and what dies. Well, you want to talk about selection. You know, that's kind of an automatic selection going on right there. Well, and I've got another one that I'm interested to play with now. I can't remember the name of it, but I actually got the seed from you. It's an orange watermelon. Uh, the orange glow. Orange glow. It's orange glow. So I planted some of that last year, and it, we left for a while, and some of it kind of got out of hand, and some of them just got left behind. And then this year I had watermelon pop up all over the place, and it was down in my hoogle beds, and I didn't really water that because it's mostly a tree system now, and I was mean to everything, and the geese ate a lot of it, and the chickens tore it up, and, and what have you. But one plant kind of survived, and it produced a, a watermelon of nice size, and eventually the vine died before the watermelon completely was ripe. So it was yellow. Oh, wow. But, but the So it was just bland. It wasn't bad. It was just, I ended up putting it in the refrigerator and chilling it and feeding it to the chickens. But the seeds were mature. Sure. So now we've got the seed out of that, and that plant had no help. Right. None. Exactly. And I'm not worried about what it cross-pollinated with because there really wasn't any watermelon out there for it to cross-pollinate. It was one watermelon that was planted. Right. So maybe from a – but I've got this big old handful of seed now, and the next year I'll just stick it wherever I think it might grow. And whatever survives, survives. And we'll just keep doing that until right. we find one that can survive the geese, the chickens, the alkalinity, right. and the exactly. abuse. And, and one thing you mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago about, you know, do you want to save seed for next year or a decade from now? And, and, and this is kind of a point that I bring up. And saving seed becomes a slippery slope. You know, it, it can become very addictive. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've got customers that came to us with their own seed banks, but I've got customers who um, – started saving like tomato seed and pepper seed and now they've got 20 or 30 varieties and you know they're they're giddy about it and it's a really key point because if you're and you really kind of need to think about this up front but if you don't you know don't really worry about it just be aware of it and that's that's exactly the question do you want to save seed you know what are you wanting to save seed for are you are you looking to have enough seed to plant some for next year you know a couple of varieties that are going to adapt better and in all the benefits of of local adaptation and selection or are you wanting to become a seed bank you know your own personal seed bank um, neither one is right or wrong but it's just something to be aware of because if you're just looking to save seed for the next year or so you don't really have to worry about the whole freezing or refrigerating or temperature control and all that. Um, you know, most of your garden seed is going to live for at least a year and be really viable for next year. Um, you know, you put it in, in a, a glass container and put it in the basement, you know, just a stable temperature environment, you're going to be fine. But if you're looking to keep corn for the next 20 years, 
then you need to replicate what seed banks do. You need to be a freezer. You need to be humidity controlled, all of these kind of things um, to, to really extend the lifespan of that seed. So, you know, because sometimes people get wrapped up. Oh, I don't have a freezer. I don't have this. I don't have, you don't need that. You know, it, if you think about it, you know, here in the Southwest, uh, you know, the ancient Puebloans, you know, you come across the, the granaries and, you know, there's still corn left on some of these on some of these pods. You, you know, they saved on average four plantings worth of seed, uh, four to six. That way, if they did have a wipeout, you know, they had an early freeze or a late rain or whatever, they had enough seed to replant uh, once or twice without being out of seed, and then they could share seed with their neighbors. This is what's kept us alive for 15,000 years. We hmm. didn't have refrigeration. We didn't have freezers. So don't overthink it. It can be pretty simple. It, it absolutely can. And can we kind of move in then to dealing with wet seed? Sure. Because, like, I just mentioned watermelon and I pretty much just pop seeds out of a watermelon and dry them off. Uh, but other seeds that are wet need different types of uh, care. If I had wanted to save a watermelon for seed, I would have let it just go, right? But I didn't get that opportunity, so I took what I could get. Right. A cucumber, I might let just go into this big, giant, morphed-out-looking thing. A tomato, there's a different procedure. So how do we deal with that when we're not just shaking dry seeds out of something? Well, and that's the thing is wet seed is anything that doesn't just dry on its own. So typically it's your fruit, which has the seed inside uh, you know, of, of the food you know of the vegetable the food that we that we eat um tomatoes do require a little bit extra work simply because that gel coat um you know you want to talk about natural adaptations that gel coat is designed to keep that seed viable as it passes through the digestive tract of pretty much any animal um and the, the gel coat is digested, but the seed comes out on the other end, and the seed's perfectly fine. So you ferment it. You just um, you slice the tomato open. If you look at a tomato as a, as a globe, you, know, um, you slice it open on the, on the equator, not pole to pole, but the equator, because then you can get into those cavities where the seeds are. You just pull the seeds out. You rinse them really well. Put them in, in a cup of water. And three to five days later, you're going to have mold. Um, the, the, the heavy seeds, the viable seeds, are going to sink to the bottom as that gel coat ferments off. You rinse them again. Sometimes you'll have to ferment them a couple of times. Uh, put them on paper towels. Let them dry. Um, but most, you know, and that's that's the most complex part of it. Like watermelon, cucumbers. Um, you know your your cantaloupes, uh, pumpkins. You know that that seeds moist, so you you pull it out of out of the fruit. Uh, you want to rinse it really well. Get that stringy stuff off. You know it takes a little bit of handwork, and you want to wash it really good, and then just spread it out to dry. Um, and that's typically the 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 easier part of it. Um, the 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 key point, and this is where home gardeners. Home gardeners make two mistakes. When they're gardening, they overwater everything. That's just human nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and in seed saving, they don't let it dry enough. Um, you know, if you think it's dry at two weeks, let it go four weeks. It's not going to hurt it. Um, get it really, really dry before you put it in a container because I promise you, if it's not really, really dry and you close it up in a container, it's going to mold. And all of that work for that year, you just lost. 
because when it molds, uh, it you know fungus is going to attack it. It's going to destroy the seed. You're going to come back to a black mess next year. Or if it wasn't you know terrible, now you've infected that seed with a fungus for for the next season, and so you've just destroyed your year's worth of work. So make sure that that seed gets dry. Okay. Um, I, I think that another reason, though, I just kind of bring this up, that sometimes gardeners overwater is they forget the water's running. <laughs> well, that's true. that's true. I got some really sick-looking plants because I did that myself the other day. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm waiting. I'm hoping it'll – of course, then it rained. It hasn't <laughs> rained for months. Uh, and then it got overcast. It hasn't been overcast for months. Right, Yay. Right, right. Uh, but it, it does happen. <laughs> and then once – anyway, back on track. Once we get um, – all that done, then we have to think about storage. And I think, again, storage has a lot to do with um, how long we want that seed to remain viable. Yes. We can store things for a season really easy. Like I mentioned my grandfather with the paper bag, and the other place he would save seeds was a cigar box in envelopes yeah. sitting on the desk in or the workbench in the in the in the workshop right uh but that's not that, that seat's probably not going to be a high germination rate in five years if it's kept that way correct and that's that's where you know we go back to you know how long do you want to save the seed for what conditions are you really aiming for um and for anybody who's just getting started or has tried some seed saving and had some successes but had some failures don't don't try to, to to be a seed bank up front. You know, just try to get seed that's going to last. You know, and be good for the next year. Do that for a couple, three, four years. Do one or two varieties. Get your feet wet. Get some experience. Experience the failures. Learn from it. And that's where the garden journal comes in because you document. You know, your successes, your failures. Because you're not going to remember this stuff in three to five years. Trust me. Um, we haven't had grasshoppers in three years. And late monsoons, grasshoppers exploded, and if I hadn't have gone back and looked at exactly what, you know, what we had done to combat the grasshoppers, I'd be starting over. So you're, you're, you know, the, the three key components on seed storage, um, what you're looking for is dry, dark, and cool. Um, you know, we've talked about dry, um, dark a lot of your seeds will start to germinate or if they don't start to germinate, their viability, their germination rate drops off. And we, you know, you learn as you go. Okay, we, we've been doing this for, for almost seven years now. Every year we do a, a germination test on all of our seeds to, to see what the viability is. And we, this year we started seeing some of the, the germination drop off when it should be good for another two or three years. Okay, so now we're lowering the temperature in our seed room. We're, you know, we've got a dehumidifier. Um, normally humidity is not an issue in Arizona, but we've had this tremendous monsoon season. We've gotten our more than a full year's worth of rainfall in, in a, two months. Um, so we've got humidity issues now. But one of the things that we were talking, we just visited a chili grower uh, in southeast Arizona, and, and uh, we were looking and talking, you know, looking at his seed room and all this, and, you know, his, his chili seed is 90% plus at 10 years, you know, of lifespan. And we're like, man... Mm. So we're comparing notes, and, and uh, you know the thing that we're noticing. Granted, he's he's a lot bigger scale than we are, but all of his seed are in bags, and they're they're heavier bags, so it's kind of light proof bags. Mm-hmm. And we're realizing that wait a second, you know, uh, we had been working in the seed room more, and so the lights were on and that sort of thing, and the tomato and chili seeds were in glass jars. Mm. Okay, well, obviously, glass and light 
with tomato and chili seeds don't do well for longer-term storage. So, you know, we're going back, okay, now it creates an issue with us because now we're scrambling with our grower. Um, hey, you know, do you have any extra seed left? We need to grow out extra of this to, to make up for this, this germination rate that's falling off. So now we're switching to opaque jars, you know, that the, that the, in, in, you know, we're not in that room very much anymore. We pulled the seed packing station out of there so the lights are off. But light definitely does have an impact on a lot of seeds. Um, so, you know, some people just automatically put them in the basement and they turn the lights off and they don't think about it. And that's a really good thing. But it's something to be aware of. Um, cool, you know, we talked about, um, but a, a kind of a key point is every 10% reduction in the temperature doubles the seed life. And infestations like corn is really difficult sometimes to store longer term because everything loves corn, beans are the same way. Mm -hmm. But if you can get below 50, there's very few insects or weevils or destructive critters that are going to be able to survive in that kind of condition. So automatically you're killing uh, if there were any infestations. Well, that's yeah. I mean, definitely nothing really enjoys being cold, right? Um, which is why they all you know critters often find their way into places they don't belong, like my barn, right, where it's a little bit warmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, and then we kind of move on from there to not just looking at how do we do it and how do we store it, but how do we how do we build quality into what we're doing. And that's where kind of the, what I call the proof in the pudding. <clears throat> that's your germination testing. We do it as a seed company every year simply because when I, you know, when I sell you Orange Glow Watermelon and you call me and you go, hey, you know, I'm having some troubles germinating. I'm having some challenges. I don't want in the back of my mind to go, oh, wait, that was that crappy variety that I'm just trying to get a year out of, an extra year yeah. out of and make a buck. No, I, I can't do that. That's, that's not how I operate. Um, but home gardeners forget that they can do germination testing as well. So let's take this tomato, okay, or, or your pepper, okay. Um, you know, you've, you've done all this work. Uh, you've got great soil. You had great uh, production. You saved these seeds off the earlier variety because you're wanting an earlier red, you know, beautiful jalapeno. Um, you've dried the seed, and, and you're ready for next year. Well, if you really want to test before you plant, if you really want to know, okay, you know, I've got awesome seed here because maybe I've got a seed swap in December uh, before I can plant and, and see the next year, you, you do a germination test. Um, after the seeds dry, you let it dry for a month, uh, at least a month, and then you let it age another month. Because if you do a germination test right after it dries, your germination is going to be pretty poor. But mm -hmm. as it cures or ages just a little bit, a month, two months, that germination rate just skyrockets. So, you know, November time frame, uh, you know, you harvest the, the, the jalapenos in September, October, November, December time frame, you do a germination test. And all you're doing is sprouting like 10 seeds to see. Um, we will sprout at 100 because we want a larger sample size. But you, you, uh, the most common way is the wet paper towel method. You take a, wet, a paper towel, fold it in half, uh, crease it, unfold it, put your seeds about an inch above that crease, fold it back over. So now your seeds are in between the two pieces or two layers of paper towel. Wet that paper towel. Get it soaking. Just barely squeeze out some water so when it, you're holding it, it's not just dripping water. Put it in a Ziploc bag. Uh, put it on top of your fridge. Put it in your oven. 
Um, they typically are about 85 to 90 degrees in those areas. Check it daily. Pull it out, open it up, you know, roll it out, uh, open the, the paper towel up, and you'll see the seeds start to sprout. And what you do is just count. Okay, if you have nine of the ten seeds, well, now you've got 90% germination. Um, you've done a very good job. You, you know, everything that you've done that whole year has counted. You know, you, you've got some really good quality seed. If you only get three or four, okay, that means something along the line needs some attention. Something wasn't quite right. But if you understand, you know, and this is part of what the course is working on, you understand the soil, you understand uh, the spacing and the selection and working with the seed and getting the best, the best fruit, at least you're going to have an understanding of, well, wait a second, maybe it was this or maybe it was that that I had issues with. This, this course is going to give you the tools to be able to address those, to be able to go after them instead of, I literally got a question um, a month ago. Um, you know, I saved my own seed and, and I planted it out and man, just, you know, it, it, it fruited, or I mean, it flowered, but no fruit. And I just don't know what happened. So I started asking questions. They didn't know anything about the soil. They didn't know, they actually didn't even know if it was a hybrid or an open pollinated. They'd gotten it at the farmer's market. Um, they didn't know how old, uh, if the seed was truly mature. I mean, there were so many unknowns. And so you can't troubleshoot at that point. You know, you're like, I'm sorry, but I have no information to give you because there's so many unknowns, you're just going to need to start over. And you hate to do that, but that's, you know, that's the whole reason that we, that we developed this, this course. Absolutely. And I, I think that germination testing is something that most, most people that are home gardeners don't bother to do. And I don't think they think, think of it. Yeah. I think if you're planning your own stuff, it depends, like whether or not it really makes sense other than, well, like if you're if you're trading or selling or providing to somebody else, I think it's very important. And then there's other times where eh, I don't know. I mean, if I'm saving tomato seed and I'm saving it for next year, and I've got a couple thousand seeds and I need 20 plants, and I'm putting three or four seeds into each hole, you're like, okay, well these the ones that germinated lived, right? Um, but if I'm going to trade that seed with somebody who's only going to get a small packet of it, right. I want to be sure that I'm trading seed that's going to germinate well for them as they're trying to improve their efforts as well. Right. And, you know, your example, your orange glow watermelon, you know, it, it doesn't make sense to do a germination test on this. Now, two or three years down the, down the road, when, you know, you've had that selection and now you've got a locally adapted variety that does well in some pretty harsh conditions – it might make sense to do some germination testing just for what sure. you said is to be able to go, hey, you know what? Here's the story behind this watermelon, and it's wonderful, and here, you know, th this has 95% germination, so I think it'll grow really well for you. Yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, that is value to the person you're passing it on to. And also, I guess, if you had seed from several different uh, plants – and you germination, germinated tested them, you'd know which ones maybe you really want to work with if they've all been selected for the same thing for multiple generations, and they all pretty much have those characteristics at that point. They're really Now I'm actually selecting for high germination. Right, right, exactly. So that's exactly. another thing. And I, I think that, like, none of this really works without, like, people, again, would ask, like, why are you doing this? Why are you going to teach people how to do this because you sell seeds? 
that none of this really works without the the three layers that you were talking about. Right. Well, and and the common misconception is, um, well, if I save my seed, I don't ever have to buy it again. Well, that's not true. Okay, because you're going to make mistakes as you get started. And even if you've been doing it for 20 years, you're going to have some cross-pollination. You're going to have things happen. You're going to have drift, genetic drift that, you know, you're just not aware of until it's, oh, wait a second, this has really changed. Okay, so now where do you go? You know, if, if you're only depending on your own seed, you're done. You know, mm-hmm. but, and, you know and so, but, but the other part of it is, uh, you know, and, and, the, and this is the thing that I hate with the survivalist, you know, and, and these survival seed vaults, it just makes my blood I, boil. Yeah. You know, as you can grow a, a quarter acre garden and feed your family, you know, feed your community. No, you oh, great. You're doing that right now? You know, <laughs> and then you can save your seed and never have to buy seed again. Really? Okay, so in an emergency situation, you're going to go from not growing anything to growing a quarter <laughs> of an acre. Feed, you're going to feed the world. And all at the same time, you're going to be able to grow 250 different varieties. And just by some sheer stroke of genius and luck, you're going to know how to isolate and save quality seed from every single variety. Really? I think you have a lot better chance of winning the lottery. Yeah. Multiple yeah, times. I, I do. Not to mention, okay, yeah, they, they have these special ways the seeds are packaged to make sure they last a long time. Oh, my God. Right. And I've played around with some of these banks, right? And I can tell you some of the stuff's five years old I put in the ground, and it's a pretty good germination rate. You know what? An allium is not going to have its seed be viable for 10 years. It's not going to be viable over a year so and a half. Seeds, when they say there's 80 million seeds in here, and, like, <laughs> it's because there's a packet of, like, 500,000 onion seeds. Right. Right. I, I can't remember who it was. I had somebody on who had, was doing something else but had previously owned a seed company, and he said that when this stuff started, somebody had approached him about providing seed for these seed banks, and he's like, uh-uh, no, they'll want to kill me if they ever go to rely on this stuff. Exactly. Exactly. It might have been Lee Reich, the guy that's done the, all the stuff, the work with the unusual fruits and stuff. Oh, like gotcha. That. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it might have been him. It was somebody that's like, there's no way in hell right. I'm providing seeds to survivalists that are going to come kill me <laughs> exactly. for an 8 and 15 years, right. you know? Right. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's, and you know, and this is partly in response. You know, one of the reasons that we did this is, is uh, partly in response to questions from, and I separate survivalists from the prepper community. Um, and, and in my experience, and I, you know, I may be way off base, but just my experience, survivalists um, are going to walk past my booth at an expo all day long because I don't have seeds in a can, and it's not something they can check off their list. <laughs> now, the preppers come to me, and usually they don't even talk to me. They go directly to the seeds, and they start looking through, and they'll spend a few minutes, and then they start asking questions. And it's these type of people that not only I can deal with, but I love working with because they're asking intelligent and educated questions. And if they don't know, they're not afraid to say they don't know. And if I don't know, they don't think I'm dumb if I don't know and I say it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know that I divide them by that term, but I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I would say... The person that's generally featured on Doomsday Preppers <laughs> right. is the guy that wants the ammo can that, that, that's a big selection of seeds for, you know, putting away in a vault somewhere or something like that. And 
I, I've looked at those collections, and sometimes what I see is an actual pretty good deal if you want a whole bunch of seed. Right. But you and then a lot of times I see really overpriced yes. stuff because it's in a freaking the one guy um, it was in like a a piece of PVC pipe with the two ends glued on it, and that was the vault. Oh jeez! I'm <laughs> going. I don't think this is wow. really right, right. You know, I mean, actually, it was a, if you put it in a cool area, it was a dark place. It probably work pretty good is because it keeps a light out but like and then when you but when you did the math you're going this isn't a good deal right see right it really isn't or if it is it is because of such quantity that the home gardener has no use for this much seed i've had people send these things to me to evaluate and and honest to god what i do with them is i keep them aside and when i have workshops here at the at the ranch I open the cans up and I just tell people take whatever you want. Right. That's how I've used. I'm just like because it is good seed. It's not that there's anything wrong with the seed. Right. It's just that the application and the practicality of the way this is done is designed to sell to a fear based mindset. Very much so. And what I've said for years with these things is you exactly what you said. You are not going to after the zombie apocalypse happens plant a two acre garden and feed feed yourself. Right. right. First of all, you will starve to death before you pick the first bean. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what even you if you do everything right, days, right, right? Everything you do everything right, you're going to starve to death before you pick the first bean. I've been teaching people from the very beginning to grow these systems so that. You know what? If Dad loses his job, hell, look at all those tomatoes out there. Right. You know what? We'll, we'll we'll eat a little bit more salad and a little less stuff from the grocery store until Dad finds a new job. That's the 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 modern survival mindset that we have. This world we live in, it's not going away. Right. I, I'm sorry to break the news to the people that tune into the show because they see survival and they think it's going to be all gloom and doom. This world is not going away, and even if the if the economy collapses. In two weeks, they'll be rebuilding with some kind of new fiat crap, and we're all going to have to adapt to it and deal with it. And, and, and you know, you, you can read all the books like Patriots you want. If the economy collapses, no, your government's not all going to pack up and leave, right? They're not going away. They're going to stay here. They're going to continue to try to control people because that's what government is. Yes. And we're going to have to build our own systems, including how to feed ourselves. And if we don't do the work like you're talking about with developing new varieties and preserving old varieties, they're not going to be here. Exactly. Because you are the stopgap, like you said, as a company, but your entire uh, your entire inventory is based on working with people that specialize in different things. Well, you're not doing all this yourself. In my entire inventory is 600 varieties. That's all that I can maintain. With our current yeah. staffing and growers, okay. If I had twenty different, if I had twenty new growers, you know, that are experienced, yes, I could probably do a thousand varieties. But right now, with my current grower level and Cindy, you know, we're a small company. I'm twenty five percent of the company. My wife maintains the grow outs. She maintains the the inventory, that sort of thing. That's more than a full time job right there. And so yeah. I can't. We can't do any more right now until we, you know, until we grow to a point. And it's not the staffing; it's the it's the growers. You know, it, it, we're constantly searching. You know, and I was excited when I found the new chili grower. I mean, this is awesome. Okay, so now I can add some new varieties, and he knows what he's doing. You know, he's he's a, a world famous. He he grows all of the chili seed 
for the hatch chili industry. It's grown in Southeast mm. Arizona. Oh wow! Yeah, all the chili oh, seeds. Some of that. Oh, it's <laughs> oh my god! I, 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 you know, and and we're out in this eight hundred acre patch parcel. He's growing on a pivot. He's using corn as isolation. He's using fifteen foot rows of corn as isolation. I mean, it's just amazing. You know, and we probably came away with, you know, because as a grower, you know, he's he's looking for all these different things. So he's just constantly pulling chilies, and we're looking at them, and just he's throwing them down on the ground. And I'm like, dude, that's waste. You know, and we must have walked away with 20 pounds of chilies. That was just, you know, wow. Oh, it was amazing. But, you know, so finding, you know, our biggest challenge is finding experienced growers, you know, who we can visit, we can understand, we can introduce new varieties with, you know, these kind of things. And so, you know, it, there's just so many things. And this is why you need those three layers because the seed company can't do it all. The seed exchange can't do it all. The home gardeners can't do it all. You know, it takes, it takes everybody together. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's no way anybody can do it all. Not with the variety you're talking about or you know, I look at some of some I guess you'd call you friendly competitors like Baker Creek. Right. You know, and their catalogs like a a a a coffee table book. Right. Right. And there's no way one farm even is going to run all the trials and do all that stuff. You have to have this network of people. Right. And it, it I think that's an opportunity for for people uh, small-scale production if they'll specialize and develop the time and the talent and the ability for one or two unique things. Oh, absolutely. Um, I wouldn't go into, like, I play with butternut because I'll tell you why. But vine borers can't get in the vines. Oh, sure, sure. And everything else here that I plant as a squash ends up with these big, giant white worms and dead. Right. So that's why I grow it. But that's not a good, if I was going to, like, say I'm going to be a seed I'm going to do something, and I'm going to specialize in something, and I'm going to provide seed to catalogs. I probably wouldn't do butternut. There's plenty of that out there. But I might find something unique and different, like you're talking about with chilies. There's so much to be done with chilies. Right, right. And what I think is amazing with the opportunity there is it's something people are really into, right? Right. Like, there's some people into tomatoes and stuff, but not, like, I mean, chili heads that have gardens want to grow everything. Right. Even if they're not saving their own seed and stuff, they don't care. If, if there's a new chili, they want to buy it. it. Right. They right. want it. They want to notice. And they don't. It doesn't. It, I please stop the quest for the hottest chili pepper. Oh, that's ridiculous. Let's go with flavors and characteristics right. and sizes and scents, and let's try to develop that because that's what you know. I, I'll tell you what. If a ghost pepper or a, a habanero is not hot enough for you, go go find a life. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's it's just like an ego thing at that point. Right. I want to make one that's hot, and how do, I don't even know how you know. At a certain point, <laughs> right. like once you can't taste your face anymore, right. Dude, yeah, right. yeah, right. But there are opportunities like that out there. I think for people to develop things. Well, and and this, you know, you touch on a on a key point that is way too often overlooked because, uh, um, you know, and Marjorie mentions it on on her sales page. You know, as a side income and trading and that sort of thing. But too many people. Too many people don't look at it in the right light, um, and it's and it's you know it's only going to be a very small percentage, but it's it's uh, just like you said, somebody who's willing to invest the time and become an expert. I've got an Amish grower in Wisconsin, and he grows one bean for me, one bean, and that's it. Okay, you know, but he's a grower for me. Yeah, you know, and so it, you know, people sometimes look at, oh, you know, I can't grow thirty or forty varieties, so nobody's going to be interested in what I'm doing. That's not right. You know, if if you come to me 
you know, and you say, hey, you know, let's talk chilies. You know, I've, I've grown this, this Anaheim chili. Okay, I've grown this Anaheim chili for X amount of years, and this is what I've done with it, and, and these are the germination tests, and this is how I do the soil. And, and you walk through the whole process. And so, you know, and I can talk to you. I can come visit you. I can see that you know what you're doing. Uh, you're open to learn. Um, you're, you're willing to, you know, and you've got a dedication to doing the right thing. You know what? I will probably buy chili from you. I'll probably, you know, contract you as a grower. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, and I, honestly, if I came to you and I said, I have 57 varieties of seeds, Steve, and you can get anything you need from me, you'd probably like, whatever. But if I come to you and I got, I got this one thing, I guarantee you, you want to know what it is. We're at least having, if I come to you with that, I got this one thing you're going to want to know about. Right. You, what is it? Right. Because as, as, as a producer like you are, like you said, you can't have a thousand varieties right now. You don't have the staff and the infrastructure to do it. So if you're going to add something, then it's got to bring a value add to your company. Right. And if you have something unique, now you've got, now you've got something you can go out to your customers with and say, we have this brand new variety available only at a few places or just here. Right. That we're working with a grower in New Mexico who's been working with this chili for 20 years. We've tested the germination. We've sampled the product, and it's amazing. And every one of your customers that likes to grow chilies is going to, if they're buying from you this year, they're adding that to their order. Exactly. And you know that. Exactly. And it doesn't have to be, you know, something I want to point out is just, it doesn't have to be rare and unique. Um, and, and, you know, and I mentioned the jalapeno again because. Um, if you try to find an open pollinated heirloom jalapeno, you're going to be really challenged. It took us three years to really figure out and find the jalapeno M. And it, it's a good jalapeno, okay? Um, I would like to find somebody that can develop it better. It, it, can, it has the potential to be a whole lot better, okay? Mm-hmm. And our new chili grower, he's got a jalapeno, and I, I, uh, I'm waiting to get some to taste them because, you know, this would be another option. But Something as common as a jalapeno, the reason that it's so hard to find is it's been so hybridized for commercial production because of salsas, yep. because of you know all these you know stuffed jalapenos, all these kind of things. Is the pendulum has swung so far to the hybridization that there's only a, a very small handful of jalapenos. So you know on something as common as a jalapeno, if you can come to me and go, hey, here's what I've done with this jalapeno, dude, I'd be all, all over it. Yeah. Of course, and I think that would be the same with anything. I think the one thing that people don't get is that something that's common means that people like it. Exactly. Right. It doesn't have to be when I say when I say unique. I'm not really talking about like uh, a, a, a striped-tailed foofy flu berry from <laughs> right. Mars. Right? right. What I'm saying is like a unique version of something that's common. Right. Right. That I, I what I said long ago is if I were going to try to go into a business like this. As a producer, I would just pick, like, I would find the earliest germinating, most resilient heirloom corn that already exists. And I'd go, when should I plant this? And I'd say, I'm going to plant it two weeks earlier. And people would go, it's going to die. I, I Okay, good. Right. <laughs> and, and I would plant that sucker for five years, replanting that seed that it, when it should not survive. And I would plant the shit out of it. Right. And whatever makes it to the end of that five years... I've got now an earlier version of that existing variety. Yeah, you've got a serious variety right there. Right? So, I mean, and, and it, is, is that what you should do? I don't know. Pick something. Right. right? right. I mean, that's, that's kind of how I feel. I'm just like, that's an example. Right. Right. Exactly. Or 
you know, do the same thing with plant. I, I, you know, it, it cheers me a little bit when I re- agree with Paul Wheaton too much, but, <laughs> um, you know, go out and start planting tomato from seed in the ground. Right. And if you have a long growing climate, like I do, there's plenty of time for that. Right. But if you did that for multiple seasons with the same variety and harvested seed only from those, right. and overseed the sh- it's cheap. Overseed the hell out of right. it. Buy, buy four packs from Steve instead of one. Right. And seed the hell out of the area you're going to grow tomatoes in. And as they start coming up, the ones that don't look like they're doing as well, just pluck them out. That's called roving. Yeah, that's negative and, selection. That's removing the stuff that you don't want. Exactly. You know, and, and, and then as you, you leave, them, leave them too dense, and then whenever, when you start seeing them get thick and green and flower, again, start yanking anything that's not flowering yet. Now I've got something that's going to flower earlier. I'm still in my first generation. I've just put so many, because what happens is the home gardener plants eight tomato plants. Right. How much selection can you really do? Exactly. But I can put 80 tomato plants where there will eventually be eight, and the winners will point themselves out to me, and I can do selection in the first generation by just culling things that don't grow as fast, that don't compete as well, anything that looks sick, anything that looks yellow, anything that looks like it's getting a little blight or fungal activity. I can do that all in one. I can't do that with eight plants, but right. I can get to eight plants where I've done that. Right. That makes yep. sense. Exactly. Exactly. And we need more of that. And I think that's the kind of thing that, that, again, if somebody had done that, and then they came to you and said, I did that, and then I did it again, and then I did it again, and then I did it again. I've been doing it for six years. Yeah, I'm interested. Yeah. I see. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Send some over. Let me trial it. Right? Exactly. Right. You know, and, and we, for, you know, we as humans have a short view of history, you know, because you know, we tend to think of 20 years, you know, Americans think of 20 years ago as ancient history. Um, you know, but you go to places in Europe and they've got furniture that's 300 years older than America is, you know. So, you know, and, and, and we, we don't have a long enough viewpoint, you know, and so we, you know, this whole instant gratification kind of thing, you know, and, and so it, it, uh, if we take just a little bit longer viewpoint, you know, we see things in a whole different light, um, you know, and, and this is the whole thing with food and with, agriculture and gardening and you know all of this kind of stuff is you know instead of a, a decade view take you know take a hundred year view um and it's just it, all of a sudden your perceptions change absolutely so if people that want to know more about this let's talk about two different things here one is the course and you're not actually offering that you're doing that in partnership with marjorie correct so where where can people learn more about the course? The website for Marjorie um, is let me get to it here is uh, seedsaving one two three dot com. <laughs> I'll bet you Stephen Harris is going to have seedsaving one two three four dot com <laughs> next week if nobody else has it. Seed saving one is it seed saving or seed save? What is uh, seed saving? Seed saving one two three dot com. 123.com. And Marjorie's got it, it's live, it's ready to go. Um, the I'm I'm finishing up the the last couple of modules, but the, you can get started today if you want. Uh, Marjorie's got the sales page, and she goes over a lot of really good information. 
she kind of takes a little bit of a historical view of some stuff. And and then uh, there's a little bit about me in there, and she makes me look pretty good, which is really nice. Um, then she's she's got a number of bonuses in here um, that are really kind of cool as far as uh, providing more in, uh, education and information um, as, as part of this, this program. So... We're partnering with Marjorie on this. We had met her at um, um, a survival prepper expo in Phoenix. And just through conversation, I was going to do this course anyway. And it really ties into her whole grow your own groceries and her education program of, you know, her, her mantras, you know, grow half the food that you need in an hour a day. So it, 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 there's, it, there's some really good synergy there. So this really ties in nicely with, with a lot of what she's doing. So it, it, this is where you go to, to, uh, um, get into the course, and um, I will have the other uh, couple of modules up either by the end of this week or early next week, so you're not going to run out uh, by any means. There there will be questions. Uh, there's homework and that sort of thing, and if you have questions, there's email system, and, and I'm, I'm going to be helping with uh, answering questions and troubleshooting and that sort of thing. So it's not like you're jumping into this course with Marjorie, and I just provide the content, and you're never going to hear from me again. I'm, I'm going to be involved with it, so uh, don't worry about that. Um, and then for people that just say, hey, I, I want to do business with this guy here directly and buy some seed from him, they can get to your website by going to? Underwoodgardens.com. It's a different name than our Terroir Seeds uh, because we, right when we were getting started with Terroir Seeds, we found an existing heirloom seed company that the owner was moving to Canada, and it was doing everything we wanted to, so... Um, instead of building the wheel over again, you know, we, we jumped on an existing wheel. So underwoodgardens.com, spelled just like it sounds with gardens being plural. Um, depending on the interest and the response, we've had a number of questions on weed, uh, reading weed populations and how to control weeds. Um, and, and that goes a lot back to soil as well, along with pest and disease um, Issues. So, depending on the response with this class and, and interest, there is some um, existing interest, and in, in we're looking at the possibility of doing other classes in the future. So, there's, cool. there's some other things to look at. And I think another thing people should think about right now is everybody seems to be in the mindset that, you know, spring gardening. And right now is a great time to plant a lot of things in in many climates. Some places you really kind of should have got your fall stuff in already. Uh, but uh, and I've already started the seed. But I mean, I'm I'm going to probably be this afternoon. I'm going to be out there plunking. You know, you mentioned broccoli. I'm going to be plunking broccoli in the ground. Exactly. Fall and winter gardening. Uh, in fact, that was our very first interview that we did. I think. Uh, to a year, year and a half ago, um, fall winter gardening is is overlooked. And, and yes, for some parts of the country, it is a little bit late to get started um, with an outdoor garden. But you know what? You go down to Home Depot, you go down to Lowe's, you buy a couple five-gallon buckets of, of their, their cheap five-gallon buckets, and you buy some Mel's Mix, which is a complete soil with the mycorrhizae and the minerals and all that. You, you buy three or four of those buckets, you get some Mel's mix in there, and you've got an instant garden. So if you've got room on the balcony, if you've got room, you know, south-facing room inside the house, 
you can grow a tomato this winter. You can grow lettuce. You can grow a whole bunch of stuff in, in three or four or five-gallon buckets. You'd be amazed at how much food you can grow. And there's some things that just taste better grown this time of year. I <laughs> yes. mean, I mentioned carrots. You know, I, I plant carrots. The thing about the carrot is the carrot is like this. It, I call it a cheap plant. I plant two rows of something, the carrots go in between it. Right. And, and nothing. No, everybody's happy. Nobody's upset with anybody. Everybody gets along in the bed. And, you know, when the carrots are ready, I'm pulling them out. And the ones that aren't, I don't want to pull right now, I full, you know, lay the tops over and mulch over top of them. They store right in the ground. Exactly. Exactly. And it's it, nothing tastes like a carrot grown that way. Well, nothing, and and y- you can't do it with anything else. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And there's a number of crops in your traditional fall and winter crops: spinach, cresses, kales, all those things. They get just, yeah, and they get sweeter as the season cools off. And and the reason why is they have this natural system. They build up antifreeze. Okay, uh, pure water freezes at 32, but if you contaminate that water with any kind of addition, sugar, for instance, and this is exactly what's going on in the plant sap, they're, they're cramming sugar into their plant sap because that lowers the freeze point of that plant. That goes back yeah. to the bricks that we talked about. Okay, so now a higher bricks plant in the fall is a lot sweeter. Definitely, definitely. Swiss chard's another one. Right. Swiss chard in the summer, and I'm not talking about after it's bolted in the second year or whatever. I'm just saying just it'll grow. It'll handle the heat, but it's kind of bitter. Right. You get Swiss chard when it's had a little bit of frost activity okay. on it and it's still going. Man, that's when it's sweet. Even if it's a foot long after it's yeah. hit, you know, 35 yeah. degrees at night. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, if you, if you want to, uh, we, we obviously have seed. We do have a number of supplies um, for seed saving, there's a couple really good books that are the resources um, in the course. Um, we've got a garden journal you can download for free. I will get the uh, the URL uh, for that to Jack. Uh, glassine envelopes. These are these little um, kind of see-through envelopes for smaller seed storage. Um, if if you're interested, sign up for our newsletter. Um, you go to our website, there's a top toolbar that's the navigation, click on the newsletter. That way we can keep in touch with you and let you know what's going on, and you can let us know your interest in if there is other other classes you're interested in, um, and then you'll see as we start to develop those. Um, the, the fall thing, not just container gardening, uh, but sprouting. Um, people forget about sprouts. You can grow sprouts any time of year without any soil. They don't need any sunlight. If you've got three square inches on your counter space, you can grow sprouts, and sprouts are amazingly nutritious. Um, and, and Jack, I don't know if you've talked about aquaponics, but this is something new that people are starting to turn to for a smaller footprint to be mm-hmm. able to grow year-round. Um, some of these aquaponic systems are like two square feet, and, and of course you can get a lot bigger than that. Um, but aquaponic systems are another way, and and now you know if you're leaning that way, now is a good time because you know growing indoor you can grow year round. Absolutely, and there's a lot of ways to extend your seasons. I I've done a lot with the, you know the polycultured beds and all, and and this 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 summer uh, for the fall garden we put in some conventional you know, 30-inch-wide, wood-framed, raised beds, uh, just for the convenience. They're right where I could pump plumb water over so I could just turn a, a nozzle and, and I put sprinklers right into them so they water themselves as long as 
I don't forget to turn it off. <laughs> uh, but by going with that standard d- dimension there, we did that with just a small area in spite of all the other cultivation we've got going on. Because if I build something that that basically can be installed to make one of them into a cloche or a greenhouse, right. it fits all of them. Right. If I want to control weeds, all I do is throw a tarp over one of the beds for a week and Weeds are sad, man. They, you know, no sun and they're unhappy. And so by doing things like that, we can extend seasons. We can go no-till. We can improve the, the, the quality of the soil, which is so important to everything. And because I set that up next to a building, if I really want to get crazy, I can, I can heat one of those beds. I only have to heat one. You know, to be able to do some things that are really, you know, season extending. Right. And if you um, use something like a rocket stove... That doesn't yep. use a ton of propane. Yep. No, it makes sense. Yeah, you can do whatever you whatever you want to do, but you can extend seasons too, greenhouses, you name it. Um, one of the coolest things I put on YouTube years ago was just so simple. I had this old forty gallon fish tank. Okay. And I had a bed sitting out there, and I had two clumps of lettuce, just different varieties of lettuce, black seeded and you know roja and all this different stuff. And so I took the the, the fish tank. And I put it over one group of the lettuce. And I just showed over time the difference in the growth. And the stuff under the fish tank, and all I would do is on a day it was going to be really hot, I'd go out there either and take the tank off or put a rock to prop it. Sure. And the growth was amazing. And I was cutting it like almost every day. Oh, wow. And getting new growth and new growth and new growth for like six weeks. And the other stuff just, it didn't die. It could handle the frost. It just sat there like, I hate you. Right. I'm not going to grow right now. <laughs> right. I'm not happy. And what was funny is I had this one lettuce plant that was just, I couldn't get the thing over it. So I just shifted it off to the side so it was next to it. It grew almost as fast as the stuff underneath there because of the, the, the heat next to it. Right, right. And all the other stuff languished. And then what was really funny is when the, when the weather got warmer later in the spring, you'd think, well, okay, now all this stuff that's been languishing would catch up. No, most of it, because it was so old at that point, said, yeehaw, heat, sent up a stem and bolted. Yeah, it's time to, it's time to go to seed. Right, right. So... so just little things like that. It doesn't always have to be a greenhouse and, and, and complicated in heat. Things like lettuce, kale, spinach, just things that will survive the frost. You give them just a little bit of heat, and all of a sudden they're off to the races. And again, they still have that great flavor because it's cool. The soil's cool. Right. Right. Yeah. It's fla- and, and until you taste that, you know, all it's going to be is just You don't talk. even know. Exactly. But once you, you don't taste understand. it, lights go on, and you're like, oh, my God, this is what they were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool, man. Well, thanks for being with us here again today. Uh, and uh, we should also mention you guys do provide a discount for the Member Support Brigade. So yes. if you're a member, get into your uh, your back-end office before you buy from uh, Terroir Seeds. And, again, it's underwoodgardens.com, though. I believe the terroirseeds.com it does, it does, it does there. Yeah, it goes there as well. What we do for the members is a 10% discount. And uh, your first order, reasonable order, over $20, you get a Starting Seeds Indoors book, which is a, a germination guide to, to help you get stuff started for, for the next season. Um, so, I mean, we obviously believe in what uh, Jack and the TSP community is doing. You guys have been really good to us, and so we want to help support what you guys are doing. 
Well, and we appreciate that. And guys, if you're not a member, there's another reason to become a member right there. Um, and I'll tell you, you'll find things uh, at Terroir Seeds that you won't find anywhere else. And I will also tell you that even if you will find it somewhere else, you're not going to find better quality. We've had great quality, uh, great results with the seeds that we've planted from you guys. And I think it goes to show your quality control is uh, something you guys take seriously. So I appreciate that as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Jack, thanks so much. Well, again, thank you for being with us today. And, folks, this has been Jack Spearco today along with Stephen Scott, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Yeah.